Welcome to episode 106 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Rachel Jackson. Rachel was headed down the wrong path, so her mom decided to call the Army recruiter and her life was forever changed. The Army recruiter convinced her to join the Army and shortly after she joined, she learned about how she could attend West Point and become an officer and eventually became an Apache pilot. She deployed to Iraq in 2006 and experienced a series of blackouts and neurological symptoms that sent her back stateside. After finding brain lesions and nerve damage, she was medically discharged, but she counts herself incredibly lucky to have Apache Pilot as part of her story, and I'm excited to share her story this week on the podcast, so let's get started. listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Rachel. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, to be honest, my mom actually called the Army recruiter when I was 17 years old. So I was definitely running around with the wrong crowd, kind of making some sketchy decisions. Anyways, I was headed down the very wrong path. And turns out I'm I'm much stronger willed than my mom was. So I ended up, uh, she needed some help. And so uh, some friends of hers from church suggested that she tried the military, and she did, and the recruiter talked me into it. So it wasn't your idea at all. It was her idea, and then the recruiter convinced you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't initiate it. No, she called him, and then he shared. Back then, this was in 1996 when I met him, and I, I enlisted in 97. But he shared about the opportunities for college, for travel, you know, for... It, it wasn't wartime at that point, and so... It seemed like a no-brainer to me. So I, I enlisted in what's called the delayed entry program in high school. And when I graduated in 97, I was off to basic. So how quickly after graduating from high school did you go to basic training? Oh, well, you're asking me to remember over 23 <laughs> years ago, but pretty sure it was within a month or two. <laughs> yeah, so pretty quickly. Yeah. Some people, it's like, oh, I graduated, and then the next day I went to... Some people, it's really really memorable because it's right away. <laughs> so, so monumental. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I actually didn't. I, I finished high school in like December of my graduation year. So I actually moved out to California to go. I was in Virginia and I moved out to California to go and be a waitress. And my mom had moved out there. I did not attend high school. So those <laughs> five, six, seven months kind of, I don't know. That makes sense. Yeah, and so you enlisted in the Army, right? I did. Obviously. Yeah. And then what was your career field? Well, so I enlisted as a 31 Sierra, which at that time was a satellite communications operations. Satellite operations systems, I forget it. I think it's satellite communication systems operator and maintainer. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. <laughs> 
when I went to AIT, which was at Fort Gordon, Georgia, I actually met a friend who was applying to West Point. And he had applied before, but had gotten uh, medically deferred. Like, I remember my family was saying goodbye to me and my uncle, he told me, he said, and he, my uncle was a Marine back in Vietnam. He was not a fan of me joining the military. So he, he told me, he said, Rachel, if you can find a way to be an officer, do that. So when I met my friend, he introduced me to West Point. I was, I had, I honestly did not grow up knowing anything about West Point at all. And there was no way in hell that any congressional representative would have nominated me for for a, a spot at West Point. So, but when he told me about it, I was like, hey, that's cool. And he was going through, uh, basically, it's called a command referral process where you you do like the, the testing and the physical assessments and the essay writing, all that kind of stuff. But you go through your commander. And so we went through our commander and he got accepted straight into West Point because he was much smarter than me. And then I got accepted to the West Point prep school or USMAPS and was blessed enough to attend USMAPS. And they got my academics up. And then once you graduate from there, you get an appointment in West Point. So started as enlisted SATCOM and went to uh, West Point after that. Okay. So you weren't enlisted for very long because you... Nope. Just, just under two years. Wow. And now, word from our sponsor. Hi, y'all. So sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation between our two beautiful sisters. Hi, I'm Carrie Jeter, founder of Freedom Sisters Media Company, and I'm so excited to announce to the Women of the Military podcast listeners about a fantastic resource that is launching in January 2021. The Freedom Sisters magazine is a digital premiere magazine app exclusively for women veterans. From cover to cover, you will read stories of our history, our lifestyle, successes, wins, business, and our healing journey. Every challenge we have ever faced, we have overcome. And this magazine is going to showcase those beautiful stories so well. We have a writing team of 30 different women veterans, including our very own Amanda Huffman. If you'd like to sign up for VIP pre-launch access, jump on over to freedomsisters.com today. Let's get back to the show. more laid back than West Point or is it the same level of intensity? I don't know that. I mean, I think it's a little bit more laid back in that you don't really, you don't have like upperclassmen. So it's, I would say it's probably more laid back, but it's really more academically focused in the majority. I would say the majority, well, I could be wrong. I think there were a lot of people there who were prior service. And then there were some like athletes, you know, who were going there to eventually play football and other sports at West Point, but needed to get their um, academics stronger. So the, the focus there at the prep school was very much on academics. Okay. And getting everything up to, to get you prepared for when you go to West Point. Correct. So what was the four years at West Point like? Uh, th- that was a, a, a long story, but I'll keep it short. It's intense, but... I remember also when I joined the military, I was I was very nervous about basic. And my uncle said to me again, he said, you know, millions of people have done this before you and millions of people will do it after you. <laughs> you know, like, it's not so intimidating that you can't, you know, figure it out. And so I think 
definitely pushed me outside of my comfort zone, but also taught me about, you know, how to face uh, adversity, hardship, you know, head on, learn greater sense of personal courage. I love how we define courage as not the absence of fear, but just having the courage to step forward and, and take the action necessary, even in spite of some fear. But um, it was intense academically, physically, militarily. Everything was pretty intense. The first year is, of course, you know, supposed to be harder than the others in some ways. So, uh, yeah, it was good. So I look back on it with fond memories, probably could have been 20 years. So. <laughs> Probably. So mentioning 20 years, September 11th happened while you were at West Point. It what did. was that like being a cadet at West Point? And I mean, it changed everything that you guys, like how you were entering the military. And you were entering West Point and we were not at war. And then September 11th happened and it changed the whole dynamic of like we were at war and deployments. And so what was that experience like? What was the impact of September 11th? Well, I will forever remember that day. We were in classes at the time that it happened. So I was like, we were in first period class, actually. We had TVs in some of the classrooms. And it was towards the end of first period. I think there was some buzz starting to to grow. And I went into my second period class. And it was uh, differential equations, 52. And just the professor had it on and we were all just watching and we saw the second airplane come in and I mean it's this it was this feeling of incredible helplessness and anger um you know and of course nobody knew exactly what was going on or why but it became very clear especially the second airplane and then the pentagon attack that we were under attack and I think I would say that most of us grew up a lot that day. You know, I think world, <laughs> the real world gets a whole lot more real. And when war gets a whole lot more real and the necessity of good men and women to stand in the line between those who would want to do evil against us and our citizens or, or even the innocent people around the world, you know, yeah, I think we were honored to have that call. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely a time of shift, for sure. I, I remember, you know, we just tried to come up with all kinds of ways that we could help the first responders, and they really wouldn't let the cadets go down to New York. Obviously, we're really close to New York. They wouldn't let us go down. So um, but we, we collected socks. You know, we did all kinds of things to send to the first responders, try to support them in the cleanup efforts, you know. So, yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. And I read Beyond the Point by Claire Gibson, and she that's a novel about West Point. They started, their freshman year was in September of, or I guess in the summer of 2001, and it was just interesting to follow the story and hear that perspective and how much of what she wrote about resonated with what you said. So it was really interesting to hear. Yeah, I've heard that book before. I need, I need to read it. I haven't had the time to do much additional reading, but yeah. yeah. It's really good. I highly recommend it. It'll like grab you and you'll just not. I was like cooking dinner and reading it because I couldn't stop reading it. It was so good. Oh, I'll have to check it out. So what career field did you end up picking when you were at the end of West Point and you got to pick what your job was? Yes. So the end of West Point or in your junior year, well, you pick your major in your junior year and then you pick your branch in your first year or senior. 
and I was blessed enough to be able to pick aviation. So I knew I was going to be an aviator. And uh, upon graduating from West Point, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. I went to flight school. And the way they do it now, I think, is different than how they did it then. But we all learned how to fly on TH-67 little training helicopters, um, Bell 206, orange and white little helicopters. And then we all moved on to um, officer basic course. I think they called it like ground nav or something like that. I forget what it was called. But we took like ground navigation in, I think it's 58 Harleys or something like that. Anyways, and then once you graduate all that, then you get to choose what airframe you want to fly. And so I chose, I, I, of course, it depends on the needs of the Army. Everything does. So you're not guaranteed anything. And so each class is given a certain amount of slots based on the needs of the Army. So whether it's going to be Blackhawk, Chinook, or Apaches, then based on that, you get to choose that then based on your class rank. And, and so um, I think our class had two Apache slots. Hopefully nobody's grading me on this. And I was I was lucky enough to be able to get one of those Apache slots. So I, was a, I ended up being a 15 Alpha, which is an Apache pilot. That's awesome. And that's what you wanted? That was your first choice? It was my first choice. That's awesome. So what was it like to, after you got done with training and you were an Apache pilot, like, well, what kind of missions did you do and home side? And then we can talk about your deployment as well. Well, I mean, flight school was a long event for me. So, yeah, we actually, you have quite, it's called bubbles in between training because it's all based on where the class ahead of you. I mean, it's, again, the needs of the Army and funding and all that good stuff. So it took me about two years to get done with Fort Rucker. And then I was stationed with the 1st CAV out at Fort Hood. So I was uh, with the 1st Hood 227th Aviation Regiment, one ACB at uh, um, 1st CAV at Fort Hood. So, I mean, we did, I mean, regular training, we did field exercises, you know, we, we deployed to readiness centers. I think that my unit that I joined had just gotten back from Iraq when I went as a platoon leader. And so it was interesting hearing their stories. And then, you know, kind of you have a little shuffle of people, PCS, or they get out. But soon it settled down and I got into the rhythm with being a platoon leader and, and then maintenance platoon leader and then moved up to Italian staff. So the com- combined supply officer and adjutant S4, S1 for a hot minute. But my career was cut short and... I don't have a lot of war stories or anything like that. We deployed to Iraq in 2006. And right before I deployed, and I was with the, um, the advanced guard going out, so we were the first to go for my unit. I was the first for my unit into Iraq. So you go to Kuwait and go to Iraq. But on the, right before we deployed, I started to notice like some weird symptoms and uh, started to feel like I was caught on broken glass when I was pre-flighting the helicopter and just this weird thing. And uh, just like the good soldier decided to, I was fine, I was going to deploy anyways. And then 36-hour trip over to Kuwait, did not sleep one bit, despite taking the Indian five times in my life. <laughs> and basically found myself in a spiral health-wise uh, in Iraq. Started blacking out for no reason. Uh, I it was, turns out they don't like pilots to do that. So <laughs> I ended up getting grounded and sent back stateside and went through an evaluation process. 
And within the span of about six months, found myself out of the military <laughs> without a, a career. So it was definitely a change for me. I, I had envisioned and of course planned on a career as an aviator and an army officer, but um, God had other plans. Yeah. So what was that like going to Iraq? Because I know you were like, I know when you were like, I'm, I'm ready, I'm fit to fight, and I, I don't need to worry about that medical thing. It's not bothering me. And then you get there and you realize, like, this is something that's bigger than I thought. Was it like a really quick process or that they, like, grounded you? Or how, how quickly did that happen? Uh, no, it wasn't that quick. I think I, I was able to stick around there for about six months. It was definitely different. Like, you get to Kuwait. Have you been? I've been to Kuwait and Afghanistan. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's like a different world, you know? <laughs> and you're just like, you know, but the cool thing is, is you're with your 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 buddies, your, your fellow soldiers, whatever it is, you know? So being with people that you know and, like, you know, leaders and, and being responsible for people and whatever it is. I mean, just helps you kind of put one foot in front of the other and just go, you know, like, and it's not so scary when you got people around you, your battle buddies, so to speak. Right. So, um, so you got, you just kind of take it one day at a time and things happen, but I mean, you can, you can right before deployment, I mean, you can let it consume you with the fear of the unknown, or you can just take each day one step at a time and, you know, take each battle as it comes and, you know, train, as you're going to fight, train the best of your ability and be ready to respond when you have to. But worrying about it doesn't help anything at all. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I got to Kuwait and, you know, formed the advanced party to get into Iraq. And we were stationed at Camp Taji in Iraq. And my job was to go up there and prepare Camp Taji for our unit, with all the housing and everything that they would need. I mean, we were, it was pretty well established, but, you know, it's not like we were taking new territory. Right. Haji's a big operating base, or was a big operating base. I don't know if it's still there or not. But so, anyways, just just went and did what I had to do. <laughs> and given that I was the staff officer, I didn't do a whole lot of flying anyway. So it wasn't it. It wasn't until I started flying more that I was like, okay, <laughs> I should probably tell them because you don't want to be a hazard. You don't you don't want to negatively impact your co-pilot or anybody else that you're flying wingmen with or anything so yeah and so they they sent you back and then they did a bunch of tests and eventually you got you transitioned out of the military did they figure out what was wrong with you medically or is that still something that you struggle with well there's some things they know and there's some things they don't know they found some extensive nerve damage and a few brain lesions and Stuff, you know, but there's weird things like the left side of my body is more numb than the right side of my body. I have delayed sensory reactions. It's it's weird, but my neurologist said they can explain about 10% of what goes on with your brain. So most, they can tell you if something's going to kill you. So at least that nobody's told me that I have anything that's going to kill me. And then I was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which I was blessed to go to a really awesome six-week training course at the Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. Learned a lot, a lot of the cutting edge. Again, you know, what was that? 13 years ago. So, but back then, a lot of the cutting edge information, which I feel was a real blessing because then I was able to actually take that and help other people because there's so many people who've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I've been able to, because of that course, really manage my symptoms with um, uh, nutrition and exercise and sleep. 
and you know sometimes some sleep medicine and sometimes some ibuprofen you know that that has ha- that has worked for me so so yes some things but no to other things there's still some other things i don't know so probably will never know yeah that's interesting how much they don't know about the brain like it's just like it works we don't know why <laughs> <laughs> it's minimally working right now <laughs> so yeah so how is that like emotionally to you're deployed you're fighting the fight you're planning on being in the military and being a pilot and then all of a sudden you have this medical issue and it sounds like within like six months of coming home from your deployment you're on your next path what was that transition like emotionally and was it a struggle or how did that go no it it was devastating at first I I actually I remember I had the luxury I say now of being able to go through depression because I didn't have any kids or anybody counting on me. I was a captain who had the rear D, the rear detachment commander, right? The rear D commander was also a captain and he did not want me to come into work thinking maybe the battalion commander would think that I could be rear D commander and he could go to Iraq. So, <laughs> so he wanted me to stay hidden and out of sight. So I was alone. I was isolated. A lot of what's going on right now with COVID-19, you know, the isolation and loneliness. And it was the perfect recipe for uh, depression. And so there were often times, uh, several times I found myself on my bedroom floor just, you know, crying. I'm just like, God, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing with my life? You know, and that was difficult. It was scary to have to go through you know, and I'm a believer in Jesus. And so I have my own journey, my own story. But at that point in time, I, I believe that's when he began to shift my identity in me from being this Apache pilot to figuring out, okay, what's my next story? What did I learn as an Apache pilot that's going to help me in my bigger story and my bigger impact that he's calling me to? So yeah, it was it was a difficult time, but I'm thankful for it. Because it allowed me to grow closer in my relationship with the Lord, but it also started a new chapter, and I'm very happy in this chapter. So I'm good with it. <laughs> yeah, your story really resonates with me because even though I chose to leave the Air Force, my husband was still active duty, and it was just too complicated when I got pregnant for me to stay in. But I lost that identity, and I like. The only thing I could turn to was God, especially because my husband wasn't here. He was training somewhere. And like, it was really, really hard. And like, going through it was really difficult. But like you said, I'm I'm thankful for that because it, it got me to where I am today. And it changed who I am and helped me find this new identity where I get to tell stories of women who've served in the military. And I just, I love it. So, Good. so let's talk about what, what did you find when... You went through that hard time. Where are you at now? Or if there's more to the story, you can tell the beginning parts. <laughs> well, what what I found is, is that there's a lot more. There's a lot more to this world than our little experience, our little our own little corner of it, right? And so, even if we think one story, like you know, sometimes when something happens, you go through a breakup or you lose your job or whatever it is, it can feel like your entire world is crashing in on you and that that there's no way forward. And the the truth of the matter is that just on the other side of that crushed down 
wall is a whole big world that has a whole lot of opportunity and a God who loves you, I believe, and has a plan for your story. I believe all stories can be used for his good or for our good, his glory and the saving of many people. So uh, to that end, uh, I had no idea what my civilian worth was going to be or what my civilian value or story was, was going to be. And I was blessed enough to have my um, physics professor from West Point call me up and say, hey, Rachel, I just got this call from SAIC wondering if I knew of any junior officers who are getting out of the military with a degree in physics and nuclear engineering. He said, I only know one. So that's, I ended up, that's how I ended up being introduced to SAIC and getting a job with a fellow um, West Point alum took a, a chance on me. So I'm thankful for that. I, I fell in love with entrepreneurialism at SAIC. Back then, they had a culture of business. And the first book I was required to read was Good and Great by Jim Collins. I, I, I really dig. I really dug business. I, I, I like building business. So anyways, after a couple of years, um, my government employee or government customer asked me to come and work as a government employee. My husband wanted me to do that. So I switched to a government civil servant. Yeah, so that is the antithesis of building business, but <laughs> it is. But I'm thankful for that period. I had kids, you know, uh, it was it's a stable job, but it's, you know, it's a rewarding job, kind of still being tied to the military. I, I was, my office was by the um, uh, airport, and so I got to see, uh, and the test center, so I got to see all kinds of Apache, you know, <laughs> every day, just flying all over the place, you know, so it was a little bit of home. Back in 2010, my mom passed away, and at that point in time, just felt an incredible call to go and help people. You know, if I look back on my story, uh, I've been surrounded by soldiers, a lot of soldiers with a lot of hard stories, <laughs> uh, a lot of questions, hard questions. A lot of people have a lot of hard questions about how can God be good and loving and the world be so painful at times, you know. And there's no black and white answer. I just really believe in particular stories um, and how he moves, you know, in, in, in relationship with him and, and just learning to trust that his ways are bigger than ours, even though we got to go through some kind of hell uh, sometimes. Uh, anyways, so, and then the day she died, my mom struggled with depression and anxiety and obesity and addiction and things like that. And But she loved Jesus very much. And she was able to use her to reach other people for him, even when she would just be in the hospital. You know, people come to her bedside, the first thing she'd say is, now, honey, do you love Jesus? You know, and so it was very beautiful. And it was it was moving to see that we don't have to have it all together. Just, just be able to be used back in. Anyways, uh, I, I clearly felt the call to reach out to people who were going through hard times, who had hard stories, and who needed to be connected to hope, help, and purpose. Honestly, whether they believe in God or not, you know, but there's a lot of people who need some hope and some community and something bigger than them to be a part of, you know. And so, and I believe God has called me to share it, to do that through the power of sharing stories, and that stories will connect people in meaningful relationships, and that meaningful relationships can move people to action, and meaningful action in your communities where we can build up, up bridges to each other and make a bigger impact together. And you know, uh, it sounds idealistic, but it's actually very simple. And so, we realize that a huge problem really is the presence. Digital media in all forms has really started to consume our lives, and there's just an 
enormous amount of noise, an enormous amount of competing agendas and messages. And the things that get attention are usually that which divide and bring bitterness and anger rather than that which brings us together in moving to relationships, you know, and we have this desire for more and more and more and more, you know, life is better, you know, buy this, do this, have more friends, have more followers, do that, you know, whatever it is. And really we just need to figure out how to reconnect with what matters, with quality, quality relationships, quality impact, meaningful impact in our lives. And I think that we really need to figure out how to do that. So that's where I am today. I created the platform called Tribal. Not me. Not me, myself, and I. I'm, I have a team of amazing, amazing people who have all kinds of skills and gifts and talents and a lot of um, sweat, blood, and tears along the way. But we've built the Meaning Network, which is called Tribal. Cool. And if someone wanted to get involved and get get information, what what advice would you give them or where would you point them to go? I'd point them to tribalapp.com. Uh, you can click on the tab that says Experience Tribal. We're launching a public beta test for everybody to join. And if you are somebody who wants to share stories or uh, to uh, apply to be a content partner of ours, there's, there's a tab on there for partners. You can just get in touch with us that way. Awesome. And I'll have the link to that in the show notes so that if people want to check it out, they can find it. And maybe I'll go check it out as well. <laughs> I really I really love what you're doing. It's so in line with what I'm doing, telling the stories and, and building community and not division. So that, That's right. That's that, right. And there's a lot of people like you, like me, who are doing stories, who believe in stories. There's a lot of people out there who our leaders who want to lead people towards solutions and impact. There are a lot of people out there who want to connect people to hope, to help, to purpose, whether they're counselors, coaches, mentors, friends, family members, whatever it is. There's so many people out there who want to do good. And and it's probably indicated by the fact that we have 600 million blogs with a new one created every half second, right? It's like, there's a lot of people who are like, we got to do something, you know? And, and for us, we're saying, hey, let us be the platform that can make you successful. You know, don't, don't define success as a million Facebook followers because honestly, that's nothing. That means nothing. To me, I'd rather see you have 100 ambassadors than a million followers any day. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. I really love what you're doing and I've loved hearing about your experience. I have one more question. What advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Uh, Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Let me keep it real. (laughs) It's hard. Um, It's worth it. But find somebody who has been through it that you respect, who can mentor you and coach you through it. And, and honest to God, don't fall into the trap of, of there's just, there's just, I don't know. There's so many things I have about military service. The military can be used for extreme good in somebody's life. It turned me around. It gave me discipline. I made lots of bad, bad choices in the military. It's not a savior or a safe haven by any means. And, and just like in regular world, there's good communities and bad communities that you can get involved with, you know. And so go in with your eyes wide open, use it to further you and take you where you want to be. Tie into the mentors, the women who can speak into your life and the men also 
who can speak in your life, who, who are where you want to be. <laughs> Don't ever take advice from somebody who's not where you want to be and figure out the education opportunities, the experience opportunities, the volunteer opportunities, the community that's going to build you up and get a, get a part of that, get, get involved in that stuff there, you know, protect your reputation, make smart choices and uh, go out and kick ass. I really like that, especially the there's good people and bad people in the military. It's not that everybody is good because sometimes you think, oh, they're in the military. I can trust them. But unfortunately, that's not the case. So you need to go on with your eyes wide open and then make smart decisions. That's really good advice. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to get connected with any of the women that you've heard on the podcast, you can always email me at airmentomom at gmail.com and I can connect you with either that woman or another woman in the branch or job that you're looking for so that if you don't know anyone, you can get connected that way. So thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you and share your part of your story. All right. Thanks so much for having me. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.